I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. One of the extraordinary events of the age of COVID was the relatively rapid development and wide-scale production of a vaccine. In fact, the development of three different vaccines by three pharmaceutical companies. As we all remember, in the first months of the pandemic, before the vaccines were available, we were forced into social isolation in the face of this virulent and deadly disease, while morbidity and mortality mounted. With the vaccines, however, we were eventually able to resume something closer to our pre-pandemic lives. But much of the world remains vulnerable, and many countries do not have access to the number of vaccines they need. This threatens not only their own populations, but the entire world, as the unvaccinated offer a reservoir for the emergence of new variants of COVID. What are the economic, legal, and political challenges of creating a vaccine in the face of an emerging deadly pandemic? How were these challenges addressed and what were the successes and shortcomings of these policies? To discuss these issues, I'm very pleased to welcome back to Econofact Chats, Chad Bound of the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Chad is a widely recognized expert on international trade and has over the past two years been an important contributor to the analysis of vaccine production and deployment. Chad, thanks very much for joining me once again on Econofact Chats. Thanks, Michael. Chad, to begin, can you explain why there's an important role for government intervention in the development and production of vaccines? In the terminology of economics, why research and development of vaccines represents what economists call a market failure? To to understand market failures, um, I think it's probably easiest to, to begin with where markets don't fail. So economists like you and I, we, we like markets. They're used to match up buyers and sellers. And they're, they're pretty useful for, for most kinds of things. My favorite example is ice cream. Uh, I have a willingness to pay for ice cream. There's lots of companies out there that, that make it. Ben and Jerry's, Haagen-Dazs, we could list probably dozens more. And in the end, we interact in a market. I get my ice cream and I'm happy. They sell me ice cream. They're happy. And society's happy. No one goes away unhappy. It's ice cream. But for some things, and vaccines is, is going to be one of them, Markets on their own just aren't enough. Governments need to step in and help. They need to intervene to get us closer to the outcome that ultimately is best for society. And one reason for market failures is because of something that economists call externalities or when the the costs or benefits to society of consuming or producing a product are different from the costs or or benefits to an individual or, or to a firm or company for coming up with that product. Chad, in in your recent Peterson Institute article titled COVID-19 Vaccine Supply Chains and the Defense Production Act, you state that there are both demand-side and supply-side market failures. What did you mean by that? 
So maybe let's start with the, the demand side for vaccines. So here the argument is the, the benefits to society, um, those are you know for everybody, the benefits to society of, of vaccines exceed the benefits to any one individual. And that's because if you have a high enough rate of vaccination, you can actually break the spread of the disease, its transmission. You can help to reduce the stress on a, a country's medical system. There's lots of social benefits of, of vaccines uh, in terms of getting rid of the disease. That's why to, to encourage people to take vaccines, governments typically intervene. Governments often buy up these vaccines and have them distributed to people either for free or at really low, highly subsidized prices. What about the supply side, Chad? The, the supply side has other challenges, and, and these are probably trickier. It could take years, sometimes decades, to, to develop new vaccines. And the issue is, you know, so imagine you're a scientist. I'm a scientist. Why would I spend my time doing that? First, how am I going to eat? How am I going to pay my bills during this period of time, which I'm just researching and, and I haven't come up with any vaccine? Second, why would I ever bother to, to spend my time doing that if as soon as I invented it, somebody else could start manufacturing it and selling it? Or suppose I, I, I come up with this idea and I start manufacturing it, but then the government says, great, you invented it, but we're not going to compensate you for all those years you spent inventing it. We're only going to pay you for the time and effort you put in starting now when you're making it for us. And these are all market failures. And, and the result is, unless you get the government to, to kind of intervene and change the system, you're not going to have the right incentives and you're going to end up with too few vaccines getting researched, too few getting invented, and too few being manufactured. So in the face of these market failures, what are the ways governments have to see the development and production of vaccines and address especially these supply side problems? So over the years, governments have developed a number of different techniques to help this supply side for vaccines. The, the first, obviously, is offering subsidies for research and development. And so here, think of, you know, say the, the government, the uh, NIH, the National Institutes of Health, uh, offering subsidies for, for researchers to kind of tackle this problem. Governments have also established uh, patent rights to protect intellectual property. So if you invent something, say uh, you're a scientist that works at a pharmaceutical company, you can have the exclusive right to make that vaccine, to profit from it for a period of time, say five or 10 or, or, or 20 years. That can create private sector incentives to, to do these kinds of inventions. But then a third, and this has really been pushed um, by the Nobel Prize winner, Michael Kramer, starting in the, the early 2000s, is something called an advanced market commitment. And there, these advanced market commitments, the way it works is the government, and remember the government we, we've said is, is going to be the main purchaser of vaccines, the government can make a legal commitment in advance to buy a certain number of doses of a new vaccine. They say up front, you know, provided the, the vaccine has these particular characteristics, uh, it's effective, it helps, you know, reduce the incidence of the disease, it's safe, and provided you get them to us by this date, then you'll ultimately get paid this amount. So the government guarantees that the market will exist at some point off into the future, and that then creates the incentive for scientists and pharmaceutical companies to invest in coming up with the vaccine in the first place. So these are very general outcomes or general rules that you're talking about. 
Are there particular challenges for the development, production, and distribution of vaccines for COVID? Yes. So COVID-19 obviously was a pandemic, and, and not all vaccines are for pandemics. But with the pandemic, and with this one in particular, we had tens of thousands of people dying every month and, and trillions of dollars of economic activity being lost. And so really what we needed was to emphasize the need for speed. And, and the problem is that getting a vaccine from beginning to end is usually a really long and, and costly process. I think of it as having maybe five steps. The first one is research, or that's, you know, inventing the vaccine candidate. In the case of COVID, the research was actually done pretty quickly. Within a couple of months, there were dozens and dozens of candidates all around the world in clinical trials, and they were there because they had been built on decades of, of prior research. And really important for this research and for some of the vaccines that, that came about was globalization. The Pfizer BioNTech vaccine, for example, that's ended up being so successful, well, that one was invented in Germany. The, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was co-invented between scientists in the Netherlands and in Boston. The AstraZeneca vaccine was invented at Oxford University in the UK. So the inventions for these COVID vaccines were fairly quick, but the rest of the process would end up taking a lot longer. And that's the rest of the process is the, the, the other four steps. And so the next step in that process is maybe the development through clinical trials, um, the, the manufacturing process. So first you have to make the vaccine, say the liquid of a vaccine at one plant, and that requires one set of really specialized equipment. And then it gets shipped off to a completely different plant to have it, the liquid put in into assembly line style, into millions of those tiny little glass vials that are then going to be shipped off and distributed to um, you know, healthcare workers around the world so that they can administer them safely to people on the ground. How did the United States government implement these strategies to speed up the development and production of vaccines for COVID? If we think back to April 2020, and so this is you know, roughly a month after the World Health Organization has declared COVID a pandemic, the U.S. government announced the creation of something called Operation Warp Speed. And they did this to accelerate the development, manufacturing, and distribution of, of vaccines. This involved a number of steps, including, very importantly, invoking this thing called the Defense Production Act, or, or the DPA. And the DPA was a law that had been created during the Korean War to, to help the federal government deal with emergencies. Uh, initially, obviously, for armed conflict, but to be used any time um, you know, there was a threat to, say, the national defense. And in the case of COVID, the federal government used it to write contracts with companies to force them to prioritize making vaccines instead of doing other things. And also importantly, in a world of supply chains where, you know, one company doesn't do everything itself, in a world of supply chains, this Defense Production Act was also used to force other companies to prioritize making the inputs that those vaccine sponsor companies would need to actually make the vaccines themselves. So one, one good example here that I found kind of highlights the importance of this. The company that was ultimately hired to put the vaccines for Moderna and Johnson & Johnson, two very successful COVID vaccines, the company that was hired to put those into those tiny glass vials. Well, 
they were forced under the DPA to free up space in their plant by breaking a contract with a different company, a company that earlier they had promised to bottle a drug to treat thyroid eye disease. So DPA meant companies, you're going to prioritize things to do with making vaccines instead of doing other things. This successfully then led to the production of vaccines by the three companies, I suppose. Yeah, though I think it's also incredibly important to remember that initially there wasn't just those three companies. Initially, the U.S. gave funding actually to seven companies to start. And of those seven, only six were successful enough in their early stage trials so that the U.S. government gave them the big contracts, the ones worth a billion dollars or more to, to really, really go for it. But casting a wide net was important as expectedly not all of those candidate vaccines worked out. And for Americans, the now forgotten vaccine candidates that were funded by the the federal government included one from Novavax, from Sanofi uh, and GSK, and and one from AstraZeneca. Ultimately, Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson came up with vaccines that worked and were authorized by U.S. regulators. But we didn't know that back when all this was beginning in, in early 2020. Chad, you mentioned five stages of development. After research comes clinical trials, and as you also mentioned, that typically takes a very long time. What was done to speed up this stage? So these are the important uh, phase three trials. And in this context, the the U.S. government essentially did two things. So first, the government paid for a lot of them. And these phase three trials are not only lengthy and take time, but they're also expensive. Uh, It costs hundreds of millions of dollars for these things. You have to find, say, 40,000 people all over the country, different ages, races and ethnicities, health profiles, lots of different demographic characteristics. The companies have to manufacture enough doses of of their vaccine at that point, as well as a placebo, so, you know, a a fake vaccine, and then they randomly allocate them to all these people. Then that's the first dose, and then you have to give them a second dose. 21 days or maybe 28 days later, you have to keep track of all these people for for many months. You collect and assess, you know, all the data that you get on them, on their health outcomes, any side effects they're feeling from from the vaccines. All that costs money and and requires expertise. And so in a number of instances, the federal government uh, paid for that. Second, the government worked with the companies to help coordinate and expedite these trials. Normally, these, you know, take an incredibly long uh, period of time to get done. And for some of the companies going through this process, ones like uh, Moderna and, and Novavax, these were you know essentially startups. They're, they're basically brand new with this. They've never put vaccines through this process before. And so not only did government financing help, but also technical assistance to make sure these companies followed all of the FDAs, the Food and Drug Administration, the, the, the key regulator here, all of their rules and protocols so that the data got collected and analyzed in the way that ultimately the government regulators would need for them to be able to make decisions about whether any particular vaccine was safe and effective enough to be able to be distributed to the American public. Well, what you described sounds very daunting, and it's impressive that they were able to speed that up. The next stages of manufacturing and distribution involve more companies who are part of the supply chain, as you mentioned. What were some of the particular challenges with this stage, and how did government policy address them? 
again, at, at this stage, you know, there's uh, six different vaccine candidates that, that are still in the pipeline. And with the exception of, of Pfizer, so the rest of the five, all of them hired contractors to basically do the production for them. Now, for companies like Moderna, again, you know, a small biotech kind of startup, that was because it didn't have any commercial manufacturing facilities of its own to be able to do it. But that wasn't the case for some of the other companies, Johnson & Johnson or AstraZeneca, right? They, they are big global pharmaceutical companies. So it's interesting why they hired contractors, but they did. They, they also needed to go and find new suppliers of inputs. These were completely new products. Uh, they had to set up a supply chain completely from scratch. And that too is expensive and takes time. And again, this pandemic, people are dying. Time is of the essence. And this process is really hard. Not surprisingly, there were input shortages. All of a sudden, all of these companies are asking for essentially what are the same specialized inputs at the same time. So demand for the inputs is through the roof. So the, the, the federal government, again, through use of this thing called the Defense Production Act, there are these amazing stories of logistics experts from the Department of Defense being embedded into these supply chains, helping to ration scarce inputs from the input supplying companies, right? So they're asking themselves, uh, who do we send this this next bioreactor bag or filter that, that just came off the production line? Do we send it to the plant making the Moderna vaccine or the Johnson & Johnson vaccine? You know, who was the last company to get one? Who, who needs the next one? Unprecedented government involvement in these supply chains. Normally, we, you know, we economists would say, use the price mechanism uh, to just allocate these inputs from you know, one company to the next. But here, the, sh the shortages were so acute that you actually had the government step in and, and help make sure that they were getting to where they could be you know, of, of their greatest use. The other thing the U.S. government did is for five of these vaccine sponsoring companies, it gave them funding early. So they got money in the, the summer and fall of 2020 to get that manufacturing process and their supply chains started. And this is four to six months before anyone knew whether any of these vaccines were going to make it successfully through their phase three clinical trials or not. Normally, setting up one of these supply chains is so expensive that companies wait and they make these big investments only after the uncertainty of that clinical trial has been resolved. And the reason why they do that is because most of the time the vaccines are going to fail in trials. They aren't going to work out. And in that case, if you've sunk all that investment, it's going to have been completely wasted. And indeed, in this particular case of COVID, the U.S. government spent a lot of money setting up supply chains for three vaccines in particular. It didn't ultimately work out. So in a sense, that, that money was kind of wasted. But in the end, that was completely okay because the government's diversification strategy meant that they did also spend money on three vaccines that did work out. So, Chad, I don't know if anybody asked you this, but maybe you could turn your research paper into an action movie. What you're describing sounds like a cliffhanger kind of event. And having studied this at the end, are you sort of amazed that it worked out or you just think that the strategy was so smart that it had to work out? Well, I do think uh, qualitatively it was the right strategy to do. Uh, and if anything was going to work out, it was going to work out. But at the same time, you know, it was such a terrible period 
that you are still amazed that it did work out as, 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 as well as it did. And so, as you point out in your research paper, after this initial success, the United States led the world in the production of vaccines. Yeah. And again, you know, by December of 2020, remember, you know, the, the, the pandemic has sort of kicked off in December 2019 in China, uh, January 2020. And so less than a year later in the United States, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are authorized by the Food and Drug Administration for use. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine was authorized in February of 2021. The fact that the U.S. government had provided funding for this at-risk investment in production, the companies could get their supply chains set up in advance. Well, that meant that millions of doses were available almost immediately. So Americans didn't have to then wait another four or six months for the companies to set up their supply chains and get them operational. And what that meant in the, in the real sense of things was the United States became the first country outside of China to be able to deliver 100 million doses, 200 million doses, even 250 million doses of vaccines to its population. It was, it was sheerly amazing. And by the summer of 2021, there was enough doses to vaccinate every American of age who essentially wanted to be vaccinated. Now, this isn't to say that even the United States could not have done better. Researchers will be studying this for years. Even at the time, technical experts who modeled this at the Accelerating Health Technologies Group suggested that the U.S. should have funded not six vaccine candidates, but 27. So they, they funded too few. And they probably should have spent three times the amount the U.S. government spent, not $18 billion, uh, but over $50 billion. So the U.S. could have done more, and it really did get lucky. But there are important lessons here for the rest of the world to learn from that initial U.S. approach in, in 2020. So if this was the topic of a great action movie, we have a sequel as well, because you discuss in your article, subsequently, the U.S. fell behind China, India, and the European Union in the production of vaccines. And for various reasons, China and India are special cases that we don't need to get into, but what you know is really striking was how many more doses were produced in Europe relative to the United States. Even the really effective mRNA vaccines from both Pfizer, Biotech, and Moderna. So do you have an idea of why this happened? Was it policy to blame or were there other factors? That's the really, really big puzzle. Um... According to data from Airfinity, and this is this is sort of the best data that we have out there publicly, the combination of Pfizer and BioNTech made something like 1.8 billion doses in Europe and only 600 million doses in the U.S. by the end of 2021. Uh, Moderna, the numbers aren't, aren't as drastically different, but they still did more in Europe compared to the United States. And, and so I think while there's a number of contributing reasons why this was the case, um, there's probably two that are really important that I would focus on. The first was essentially the uncertainty over when companies making vaccines in the United States would be allowed to export. Under the Defense Production Act, so under those contracts that got U.S. plants um, priority access to all those inputs in, in 2020, the contracts were written so that the U.S. government owned the doses that were made from those inputs. They were the property of the U.S. government. You couldn't export. The U.S. government kept triggering options from the companies, from Pfizer uh, and Moderna, for more doses in early 2021. And it was unclear when those 
inputs that, that were being used to manufacture those particular doses when legally they would be permitted to make doses that could be exported. That lack of clarity over when you could export from U.S. plants mattered because in Europe, you didn't have that uncertainty. And so suppose I'm, you know, the head of Pfizer, BioNTech, or, or Moderna, and it's late in 2020. At this point, I know um, from the clinical trials, my vaccine is safe and effective. Uh, the regulators have authorized it for use. Now I have to make the big decisions about where I'm going to make the next big investments to build out my capacity to export. Do I do it in Europe or do I do it in the United States? Well, this uncertainty at that stage over when you were going to be allowed to export from plants in the United States, that would tilt you in favor of doing those investments in Europe. So I think that uncertainty over exporting the legacy of the 2020 U.S. contracts and policy, that wasn't really clarified in early 2021, and I think that was a big factor. But there was a second separate potential policy failure in 2021 that I think was also important. And that's, uh, uh, I think, a major point that, that my paper tries to get at. This question of, even though that was the case, could the U.S. government have recontracted with companies in early 2021 under this Defense Production Act to get them to also increase their American production capacity in addition to what they were doing in Europe? Now, how might they have done this? Well, the idea is, remember the, the logic of those advanced market commitments that we talked about earlier? the ones that the U.S. used in 2020 to ultimately get those early doses by guaranteeing that there would be a market there. The question is, could you reapply that same logic, but to this new setting? So at this stage, there's lots of new orders coming in from foreign governments, from countries like Canada, Japan, Australia. Why not package all of those orders up into bigger orders, present them to the companies as, you know, sort of maybe one big order, but also write a contract that's contingent on the companies adding additional production capacity. So if they add an additional production line, say, that allows them to get the doses produced for everyone more quickly, then the company would get additional funding to cover those costs. So the idea is don't just contract on doses and give the companies flexibility on where to put what order in the queue but instead contract on capacity. The problem is no one did this. And that I think arguably was a policy failure. No one organized it. It was partly a collective action problem. You know, who should be the one organizing that? Should it be the US government or somebody else? But what you ended up seeing instead was government orders from all these foreign countries just all got in line and the companies ended up fulfilling them, but on their own timetables expanding capacity where they wanted, when they wanted to meet their own profit objectives and not necessarily as largely and as quickly as society may have wanted to help resolve the problems of the pandemic. So those are my two reasons. But again, why vaccine capacity expanded so little in the United States in 21 is such an important puzzle that I think we need much more economic analysis and especially data crunching to ultimately get to the bottom of it. So we've been discussing the supply side of vaccines, but of course there's this demand issue as well. There are high rates of vaccination in the United States, 
And the shortfalls in vaccinations don't seem to be so much from a lack of supply as from a reticence by some people to be vaccinated. So why does it matter that the production of vaccines in the United States is falling short of the production in other countries when we have enough vaccines, it seems, for those who want to be vaccinated, at least? As of today, that statement is is just absolutely true. You're exactly right. Uh, even globally, I think we've now reached a stage in mid-2022 where we have more vaccine doses overall than people are willing to take. So supply is, is no longer the constraint. But that wasn't the case a year ago, say in the summer of 2021, or really even six months ago. And the key question is, what policies would have been required for U.S. manufacturing facilities to have doubled or tripled their output at that stage, say the middle of 2021, to make supplies available to the world even larger, especially supplies of the highly effective mRNA vaccines from the Pfizer, BioNTechs, and, and Modernas of the world that were only being made in Europe and the United States. Most of the world was only going to get those vaccines in particular through exports. Earlier doses for the rest of the world would have meant fewer lost lives, fewer lockdowns and economic losses, less likelihood, as you mentioned at the top, of the emergence of these, of these new variants that are of concern. So hopefully there are lessons to be learned from this experience and, and from this research in helping the world to better prepare for next time, should there ever be a next time. Well, there probably will, as we know, and lessons that will be learned. I'm sure some of them will draw from the important research that you've done, Chad, and also the integration of globalization and the creation, distribution, and use of vaccines, which you've also pointed out. So, Chad, thank you very much for joining me today on this really important topic and sharing your insights, which have been very, very valuable. Thanks for having me, Michael. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.